0: Hello and welcome to Dead to Rights the podcast. I want to thank our listeners from all over the world for joining us on the pod. At Dead to Rights, we've got one single mission: to bring our listeners a wide array of insights into the book industry from the points of view of authors, book designers, booksellers, publishers, in short, anyone connected with the industry. If you're a reader, this is where you'll meet your favorite authors or discover new talent. If you're a writer, stay with us for excellent tips on writing and on working within our industry. Through April, we brought you interviews with such established talents as John Rakestraw, Janet Kello, John Strother, Melody Campbell, and today we're pleased and proud to touch base with organized crime expert and freelance journalist, Stephen G. Matelski. Coming up in May, we'll reach out to authors Jun Ying Kirk, Judy Penn Shaluk, Russell Parkway, and the ever popular Cyrus Webb. We'll talk about their works, their experiences in the industry, their tips for newbie writers, and so much more. One of the topics I'm most interested in is what motivates us to write. From where does this passion present itself in our lives? I can recall our grade 6 teacher, Mrs. Milbrandt, who told us there are four primary reasons one will write. To inform, to educate, which is not quite the same as simply informing, to persuade, or to entertain. As a writer of fiction, my primary goal will always be to entertain, But I have to contend here and now that there is a fifth motivation that we are all aware of peripherally as writers, but that does not receive enough attention. Pure artistic expression, as delivered in the written word. By this I am referring to the essential beauty of words, their power, their intrinsic value, their ability, when well chosen, to stand on their own as art. Yesterday I finished reading A Higher Loyalty by James Comey. It was certainly a well-written and a deserving read. I'll confess, I bought the book, but I ended up listening to most of it via Audible, which I highly recommend. It's in the author's own voice, and it's a good voice, bringing my ears closer to an understanding of what Comey wished to convey. This was a terrific example of the first three motivations outlined by Mrs. Milbrandt so long ago in grade six. To inform, to educate, and to persuade. Comey set out to tell the public what he could of the unclassified findings of his work as head of the FBI in these troubling times, leading up to his abrupt firing in May of 2017. So he wished to inform. He also wanted to educate us about the workings of the U.S. Justice Department, the intricacies of which many of us are loosely aware at best. He did a good job of that. I came away with a clearer understanding. Naturally, he also wanted to persuade the listeners of the validity of the reasons behind some of his more controversial decisions made in the final year of his employment. Of course, as he points out, We all listen with our preconceived notions firmly in place. But, that aside, I do commend his persuasiveness. His manner was humble, and yet he wrote with the authority that comes from real-life experience, a combination that I do find to be persuasive. None of that matters if the book fails to entertain. Comey's use of higher-level concepts and themes, like loyalty and honesty, were compelling to me, and made for a terrific read, independent of the other elements of the book. In all, I recommend it, and I also recommend the Audible edition. But I must argue here and now that there is a fifth purpose, or motivation, behind writing, and that is for the sheer pleasure of engaging in the beauty, the expression of artistry that flows with a well-chosen phrase, a poetic prose. Such is the book I have just cracked open today and begun to read, titled The Colony of Unrequited Dreams, by author Wayne Johnston. Every word so far, every single phrase, is placed into the story with care and craftsmanship. The result? An undeniable reminder that to write is, first and foremost, to engage in a beautiful art form, no less so than does a painter, Or a musician or a dancer. The result, in my opinion, is mastery. I'm going to love this book. We've had a tough week here in my beloved city of Toronto. On Monday, April 23rd, a white van purposefully crashed into a crowd of pedestrians at the corner of Young and Finch. We don't yet fully know the motivations behind the attack, but the early reports indicate it was the result of yet another round of misogynistic rage. The driver, whom I will not glorify by naming here, had posted material that indicated his hatred of women and his seething fury at their rejection of him. I won't cast judgments here, although I know it sounds as if I am. I suspect enough judgments are being cast even as I speak. But I will say that my love and my sorrow Go out to the victims and their families, as well as to the family of the suspect, who must be horrified by the actions of one of their own. Such is the world we now live in, in which we attempt to work, to thrive, to build our little nests of love and order, and to create art. Such is the world in which we strive to be always prepared. And of course, we understand, even as we do so, that preparation is the ultimate in impossibility. And now I'd like to read to you from a story that first appeared in Septill and Other Places, a collection of mine from a few years back, and then later appeared in my 2016 collection titled North on the Yellowhead and Other Crime Stories. And this short story is titled Prepared. While you listen, I'd like you to think about what being prepared means to you. Helen, she said, I've come to prepare you. The woman spoke in an urgent voice. Her hair was a mixture of silver and gold, advancing years in denial, given the lie by timeless blue eyes. Helen had never seen her before, but she seemed familiar. Helen woke with a start and squinted at the bedside table. 2 a.m., no sounds other than the natural creaking of an aging house, old but with good bones. Then she remembered. Z had called at 11 p.m. to say she would be staying overnight with her friend, Claire. Helen guessed her daughter was likely spending the night with her boyfriend, Sam, but Z was a young woman. She could do as she pleased. Helen was grateful that, at the age of 20, her daughter still called when she wasn't coming home. Zee never gave her cause to worry. She'd raised Zee to be an independent woman. Her daughter was strong, beautiful, and thoughtful. Helen reached for her crutches and strapped them on. She was careful to use both when she was home alone. How embarrassing would that be? to fall down in the bathroom with her drawers around her ankles. She did her business, washed her hands, ruminating on the face from her dream. So familiar, and yet she couldn't place it. A depth of kindness in those eyes. She shook her head, unable to match the face to memory. She glanced in the mirror at her own blue-gray eyes and golden hair. Well, chemical gold. But still vibrant, thanks to Z, Z would not allow Helen to let herself go. Leaning on her left crutch, she reached for a brush and smoothed the tangles before heading back to bed. The physical struggle of moving on crutches stirred her heart in an uncomfortable palpitation. The moment passed. Soon she was asleep. Helen, please listen to me. The woman touched her shoulder. What do you want? Your father sent me to prepare you. A quiet rage took hold of Helen, tightening her fists. She stood tall, as she often did in her dreams, without crutches, without pain, a force to be reckoned with. Don't mention my father, she said. He was a wife-beater, a child-molester, and a drunken bastard. I don't have time to remember him. Your Heavenly Father is sorry for your suffering, Helen. He knows pain has been a large part of your life. How can he call himself a loving God? My entire life has been about misery, from those early years of abuse to this illness that makes me a burden, a burden to the husband who left me and now to his child. You're not a burden, Helen. You are loved, and your life, the woman added, has not been all about pain. That's true, Helen nodded, her anger subsiding. I have Z. I am thankful for that. Helen, the woman said, I need to prepare you. It's all right, Helen said. I've been prepared for years, since this illness claimed me. Tell our father he can take me when he's ready. But Z, Zee will be all right, Helen said, suddenly calm. She knew this would happen. I've always been honest with her, taught her to be strong. Helen smiled again at the thought of her daughter. Zee was doing well at university. Helen had prepared her for this day. She never wanted to be a burden to Z. It was time to let her girl have a life of her own. Throughout the years of bitterness and sorrow, There had always been one gift, Z. Helen's pride and joy, her offering to the world. Knowing she would leave behind such a fine young woman made it easier for Helen to face mortality. I've become tired of this struggle, she said. Tell our father if he can forgive me for being a stubborn, angry fool. Then I can forgive him for giving me this pain. I'm ready to make my peace. Helen, the angel said, for she must be an angel, so lovely, with such kindness in her sad eyes. She looked like someone Helen knew. Please hear me, she said. You need to be prepared. It's okay, Helen said, letting the dream angel drift away. Whenever you're ready, take me to him. "'I'm prepared.' "'With a feeling of contentment, Helen took her leave of the angel, "'allowing her mind to wander into other rooms, other dreams. "'I'd like to leave now,' Zee said, "'glancing over her shoulder at a young man on the other side of the room. "'Are you okay?' Sam asked. "'You seem preoccupied.' "'I'm all right. I'm just tired. "'It's late. I've got classes tomorrow.' Did you call your mom? I told her I was staying with Claire. Good. It's noisy in here, Sam said. I'll go outside and call a cab. Sam kissed Z on the forehead. She was one in a million. Beautiful, kind, studious and loving. He was a lucky guy. She watched him leave the party, hoping he wouldn't be gone too long. Hi, Z. She nearly groaned out loud as the other man approached, but good manners kicked in and she managed to restrain herself. Hi, Richard, she said. Who's the guy? That's my boyfriend, Sam. Some boyfriend. No offense, but he looks like a girl. Why'd he ditch you? He's calling a cab. We're leaving now, Helen said. You'll have to excuse me. Z stood. She could feel her Scots-Irish blood rising. Her mother hadn't raised her to tolerate this kind of nonsense. Richard had been a nuisance for weeks, but now he was becoming insufferable. She didn't want to make a scene at the party, but she would if she had to. "'Take it easy, Z,' he said. "'I just want to talk. You've been avoiding me.' "'Stop following me, Richard. I saw you at the library today.' "'I was studying,' he said. "'It's a free country.' "'Excuse me,' she said, trying to push past him. "'Richard held her arm. "'You never gave me a chance,' he said. "'Let me go.' "'The knife's blade was sharp and mercifully swift. "'She hardly felt it slide past her ribcage and into her heart. "'Her hearing became muted and at the same time strangely acute.' She was aware of horrified shouts as her friends looked up in alarm. Her blood crashed in her ears, drowning out their cries. Her closest friend, Claire, rushed to her side. She watched as someone ran to get Sam. He pushed through the crowd and knelt in time to hear her whisper. My mother. The End and this has been a prepared, a story that I wrote to show us that even when we think we're prepared, the twists and turns of life and fiction, both life and art, will often take us quite by surprise. Thank you for listening. And now stay with us as we bring you our interview with organized crime expert Stephen G. Matelsky. Stephen is not only an organized crime expert, he's also a freelance writer, a professor, a criminologist, a keynote speaker, and a former intelligence officer. Stephen publishes a variety of crime stories and research articles on his site, UnderworldStories.com. So stay with us. We're going to get Stephen on the line right now.
1: Free, it Let it rock.
0: Good morning, Stephen. Welcome to Dead to Rights. How are you today?
1: Oh, I'm very good, and thanks very much for having me.
0: Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. I wanted to have you on because I know that you're a freelance crime journalist and uh, an expert in organized crime in particular. Is that right?
1: Yes, that's exactly right.
0: Okay, good. So I was hoping that you could tell our listeners a little bit about some of the cases that you've been exposed to in your research, in particular the McCarthy serial killer, um the Musitano murder. Um, Hmm. We have a few different ones, uh, organized crime and gambling. And I know that yeah. you've got, you've also got a course, uh, a college course, uh, under development.
1: That's correct. I, I'd probably like to start, I'm, I'm currently working on something as it uh, pertains to the Bruce MacArthur case, because it's a very tragic case, uh, but very much ongoing uh, in mm-hmm. the public eye. Um, The one interesting thing, uh, I posted something about a month and a half ago back in January on one of my social media accounts about the case, Um, and and Bruce MacArthur is definitely a serial killer. Uh, You know, any time a perpetrator has committed murder involving three or more victims over a certain span of time, um, they're classified as a serial killer. The one concerning thing I have with the MacArthur case and, and the perpetrator in this matter is he's 66 years of age and your atypical serial
0: killer starts offending um on average in their in in their 20s yes
1: and 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 typically the only thing that stops a serial killer from committing these heinous crimes is incarceration or death
0: that's right Um, or or some other form of incapacitation like a, a
1: like an injury or something like that, but MacArthur has been, uh, to the best of my knowledge, never been incarcerated, so my concern, and this is what I I posted on one of my accounts, is that he has been, no doubt, uh, this is the first time he's been caught, this isn't the first time he's committed these murderous actions, Mm -hmm. so in in my personal and professional opinion, the, the concerning thing, and I think we're seeing that now with the victims that police in Toronto are finding, is that I think he's been doing this for for several, several years.
0: I would not be at all surprised. I I, I agree with you. My research into serial killers for my crime writing has led me to believe that this is something that they do over a span of time, and they simply don't stop. Um, It's particularly heinous because it's taken, well, from a personal perspective, because I live in Toronto, and I have friends who live very, very close to the house in question. Um, What do we know about MacArthur's past? Has he always lived in that area, or did he move there from elsewhere?
1: I'm not quite sure. I'm I'm literally at the uh, tip of the iceberg for getting into the story, researching it, and and writing it, because it's still unfolding. I was talking with some colleagues and what I reiterated was it's a very daunting task for the Toronto Police because if you take into consideration that he's been doing this for decades and that was one of my assessments that he's because he's never been incarcerated uh, it's the first time he's been caught the police now have to essentially work in reverse chronologically and literally find out where Bruce MacArthur has lived where Mm -hmm. he's worked his social circles. I would have to compare, uh, his location and address history with other potential cases mm-hmm. of either missing persons or unsolved homicides or serious or aggravated assaults, mm-hmm. um, in, in certain communities he's lived. So I, I'm just at the tip of, of, delving into that a little bit further, but for the Toronto police, this, this case could literally take, uh, years in terms of, you know, tracking down, um, his potential criminal past,
0: which yes. is definitely apparent. Yes, these, t- these types of investigations for our listeners who may not be um, as knowledgeable about true crime incidents, um, they tend to be very glacial in, in, in their procedure. And uh, so it does seem like nothing is happening, but behind the scenes something is. And Stephen, I'd love to have you back uh, maybe next year when we know more about this to, to talk to us more about it. Um, just throwing that out there early on, you know. I would
1: love to come back because definitely at that point, not only will the case have uh, evolved and progressed, but uh, it give me an opportunity to probably share some of the uh, writing and research I've been able to do on that case.
0: Yes. I, I don't want to leave this case yet either because there are other aspects to it besides um, what you pointed out about how serial killers, male c- serial killers, the profile They tend to be killing from early in their adult lives and and carry on until they are physically stopped by a silver bullet of some type. But there's another aspect to this in that, um, like so many of his type of killer, he targeted vulnerable people. What can you tell us about his victims and and their victimology?
1: Yeah, I I like how you use the word victimology because we kind of get lost in um, focusing on the perpetrator and the crimes, which is, you know... uh, Definitely at the forefront, but mm-hmm. the real tragedy here is the victims and killers like this. Uh, I'll, I'll segue into an interesting case as well that happened in Rochester, New York, back in the '80s with Ar- Arthur Shawcross. Very similar to Bruce MacArthur, um, because they they do target victims that uh, they hope will not be, um, you know, reported as missing to the police mm-hmm. or. You People, they, they feel that are more susceptible to being, to being victims, unfortunately. Yes. Um, the, Arth- the Arthur Shawcross case is actually such an interesting dynamic in the world of criminology because he uh, murdered two young children, a hor- horrible offenses back in 1972. Uh, he was incarcerated. There was some plea bargaining. Uh, a person like him never, ever should have been pulled or released, but uh, he only ended up serving 12 years of a 25-year sentence, so... He was paroled. Wow! And between 1988 and 89, he murdered uh, several prostitutes in, in the Rochester, New York area. Mm. So he definitely was a serial killer. But very similar, he was targeting uh, victims who obviously were were working in that in that line of work. Who, unfortunately, uh, there's not a lot of connectivity with with family, and so with a lot of these killers, they, they try to target people that hopefully won't bring the attention, to, you know, to authorities.
0: To, That's uh, right. Won't be reported missing with any kind of alacrity yeah. and um, that sort of thing, yeah. Yeah. Maybe estranged from their families, may, may not have that kind of network.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. So the interesting thing with, with Bruce MacArthur, uh, and when you look at serial killers, there's always some type of, of motive behind their 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 criminality. And most times, not always, but there's usually a, a deviant sexual motive behind their, mm-hmm. their offenses. And this is definitely apparent uh, with Bruce MacArthur. Um, and I just spoke about Arthur Shawcross a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Definitely the same thing in that case. So when you start comparing a lot of the, um, the modus operandi with these killers, you, you really start to find a lot of commonalities with with not only the, their signature in terms of who they're targeting and how they're, how they're committing their criminal offenses.
0: Yes, yes. Now, what year did you say that Shawcross was paroled? And the, I have a reason have, for asking, sorry. Well, I, I'm not sure the exact year he was paroled. Uh, it
1: would have been uh, definitely in the 80s, but between 88 and 89, which okay. when uh, a lot of victims were unfortunately being uh, murdered and targeted in, in the New York area.
0: I'm just, I'm curious as to, I can't recall what year John Douglas really came to the front with his profiling work um, in the FBI. Uh, and I wonder if there's a tie-in, if John Douglas's work had been more prominent at the time of Shawcross's pro, um Release whether he even would have been released because what we now know about these killers.
1: Yeah, John Douglas was back in the in the nineteen seventies. I've actually read a lot of his
0: books. Okay. Yes. So have I. I just um, couldn't remember the time frame. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and there was another uh, really excellent profiler by the name of Roy Hazelwood. I believe they brought him in for uh, the Paul Bernardo case before they were able to identify who the, the perpetrators were.
0: Say that name again, um, uh, Stephen, if you don't mind.
1: Roy Hazelwood.
0: Okay, very good. I'll look him up, and I hope our listeners will, too. And uh, he yeah. was he was effective in the Paul Bernardo case.
1: Yeah, I'm just, this off the top of my head, I'm, I'm from memory, I'm 99% sure they brought Roy in to do a, a criminal behavioral pr- profile of the perpetrators in those heinous crimes out in the Niagara area in Burlington. Um, right, Hamalka
0: and, and Bernardo, yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: Now, that that is perhaps the most sensational type of killing and crime, and um, certainly the most heinous as far as most of us are concerned. But you've studied a lot of different types of crime. and uh, For example, tell us about the Musitano murder.
1: Yeah, the Musitano murder is, is very interesting because I have a background with organized crime history, and I've worked it in, in my previous employment. And Angelo was murdered back in May of 2017 in his driveway. And the Musatano family in Hamilton, um, the, the brothers, Pasquale, uh, he, he's known on the street as Fat Pat, and, and his brother, um, a very powerful crime family. Back in the, the 1997, they hired uh, or paid hitman Kenneth Murdoch to murder Johnny Pops Papalia, who at that time... Was the the boss of, of Hamilton and, and Outward. Uh, historically, Johnny Pops Papalia uh, was connected with the Buffalo organized crime of the Stefano Magadino family. And Johnny Pops Papalia was a very powerful mobster. And what the Musitano brothers did was they hired Kenneth Murdoch to shoot Johnny Papalia. And then uh, Johnny Pops' right hand man, Carmen Barrero, Lived down in Niagara Falls. Kenneth Murdoch, a short uh, while after, uh, was contracted to kill him as well. So there's a lot of irony in the mafia, especially with organized crime hits. And Angelo Musatano was was shot in the driveway of his home, practically 20 years, uh, 20 years to the anniversary of Johnny Pop's murder. Not to say that this is a revenge from uh, 20 years ago but it's quite possible
0: yes we don't know we don't know for certain but it certainly would be a bookend type killing wouldn't it
1: absolutely and Mm -hmm. the motives are endless because when you look at the evolution of organized crime uh, we'll go back a few decades you had traditional organized crime as italian-based and you have outlaw motorcycle gangs. You have Asian organized crime, Eastern European organized crime. And years and years ago, these groups typically uh, didn't amalgamate and work in partnership with other organized criminal groups. Over time, these criminal groups realized that, hey, you know what? If we partner together, we our ultimate shared goal is making money and, and profitability. Mm-hmm. And they started. They started working together. So when you look at the Musitano uh, murder, um, these traditional Italian-based organized crime families have been working with various factions of, you know, a lot of motorcycle gangs and other organized criminal groups. Mm-hmm. And that's that's externally. When you look at the internal within those traditional groups, uh, the Musitanos are part of what's called the Dragona, so it's a, a Calab- Calabrian-based, well, Calabria, Italy, organized crime. And then you have up in Montreal with the what's remaining of the Rizzuto crime family they're typically referred to as La Cosa Nostra which is Sicilian based. Okay. So even within organized crime circles yes you will get Calabrian mobsters working with Sicilian mobsters but the the big push right now especially in Ontario is the Andragata families from, from Calabria. So whether it's Profits from illegal gaming, whether it was a, a beef in the underworld, whether it's a you know a criminal takeover where other organized groups within andragata or outside of that circle you know want to get rid of the Musitano so they can you know take over their rackets. It's and I'm
0: I'm important. sure you'll be following. I'm sure that you'll be following the um, investigation into the into the murder as it progresses. And um, before we go any further, I want to stop you and get you to tell your website address to our listeners. Because you've got uh, some terrific headlines there uh, that made me, really caught my eye. For example, No Mystery to this Murdoch, which is a, a touch on the uh, the, the case uh, where Murdoch was hired to, to kill the mobster 20 years ago. And uh, the um, Whacked in Waterdown, I love that headline because I know people in Waterdown. I'm not going to say where they live because I don't want to get them whacked. But uh, anyways, your, your website, Great. Stephen, please.
1: Well, thank you very much, Don. I, yeah, I have a blog. It's underworldstories, all one word, underworldstories.com. And it showcases some of the research I've had published, uh, some of the true crime articles that I've had published as well, and then ongoing work and research. I'll be uploading that to, to that website as well. Thank you very much for for following that up and,
0: and the plug for my website. You're welcome. I didn't want to forget because I, I really ha- I'd really i made myself a note about these terrific titles, and I'd gone and I'd read some of these stories, and they're so well-researched and so well-written. I really encourage people to go and pay a visit. But uh, not to not to keep you on this little plug, I know you want to get on to telling us about the gambling and organized crime research that you've done, and um, you raised the question whether these actually are victimless crimes,
1: yeah, a lot of people, I think, and not to generalize, but when, when people think of an illegal gaming house uh, where poker's being played, um, there there is a tendency, uh, without looking further beneath the surface, that, you know what, what what's gam- illegal gambling? Playing, playing a, a game of cards, that's not a victimless crime. But these rackets in organized crime circles make organized crime... Uh, members, millions and millions of dollars. Yes. you look at, I'll, I'll take just an example of one gaming house, typically uh, working by different factions of organized crime, but in, m- in my research, I, I dealt specifically with traditional organized crime, Italian-based, and how they use uh, their relationship with a lot of motorcycle gangs. So a typical gaming house would consist of five or six different poker tables they will have a professional dealer. Uh, these games are not open to anybody. You can't just walk into one of these houses. These games uh, typically go out uh, with direct invitations to people. They're secretive locations. The house always wins at these games. So you have these people who are corner the games. Uh, typically, there's some enforcement there uh, in terms of Typically, bikers that will protect the houses from being ripped off. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the basic, rudimentary level of poker games, thousands of dollars just for one house are, can be made in, in one night. And if you have 20, 30, 40 of these on the go, that's just one racket and one form of gambling. We're not even talking about the even more lucrative. Online gambling rackets—that organized crime has literally got right into—in the last few
0: years—and and whenever there's a great deal of money at stake, there is almost certainly someone going to be hurt or someone living under threat uh, of being hurt. Um, it just—the one just can't go without the other. And the other thing that amazes me is you—you you touched on um, the house always wins. Is there anyone who doesn't know that, that the house always wins? Can we pump that simple fact up for listeners? Um,
1: yeah. Gambling is is an addiction. It's it's literally um, a disease for some people because there's this tendency for if you win once out of, say, 150 or 200 attempts at gambling, it's that faint hope that if I keep gambling, I keep gambling, I'm going to win again. Mm -hmm. And that's how people really start losing a lot of money. But the offshoots of criminality at these games uh, and and where the violence comes in is these people are gambling typically with money borrowed Mm -hmm. from organized criminals. And this money that's uh, borrowed or lent out to them comes with a high, high rate of interest. that typically most people cannot pay back. So what they don't realize is in a week's time when they're supposed to pay the the vague or vigorous or the interest, uh, they can't even pay the principal, Uh, that's where uh, the enforcement comes in and people get seriously hurt or Mm -hmm. people
0: have been murdered. With all of these organized crimes, we really do need to scratch the surface. I mean, gambling is one of them, certainly, where because there's an addictive element people really must gamble when they're addicted they really must and therefore they must they must borrow these large amounts of money at high rates of interest and so behind the scenes there the, you know and i'm thinking also about pornography i know that you haven't uh, written extensively about pornography but it's another similar thing that people love to think of it as a victimless crime but when you consider young adults and in many cases children being forced to perform for this industry, that's not victimless.
1: Absolutely. And that's, you know, something perhaps we can talk about in our, in our next interview is yes. the whole issue of yes. trafficking. That is a whole separate issue that I'm very, uh, not only concerned, but passionate about getting that, the word out and educating people about really what is going on in our society today.
0: And mm-hmm. that's about mm-hmm. And I raise it, too, because it segues to something else that I've been very interested in lately. We're going, to be, we're going to be airing down the road, but I want to let our listeners know that we're speaking on February 17th, which is a lovely Saturday morning in Toronto. We've uh, just seen the intense rise of the Me Too movement throughout the certainly the Western world, I think probably the entire world. And at your website, Stephen, you've got a dark little story that I found in there nestled amongst the mob stories. Um, about the murder of Shannon Cruz and her family in Grimsby, Ontario. It seemed like a detour from your usual stories, and so I'm wondering what what prompted you to fasten on to this story and delve into the research of it.
1: Yeah, thanks, Donna. I'm originally from Toronto and Mississauga, but for the last 20-plus years I've been living out in the Niagara region, and I was living out here at that time when, when that very tragic uh, set of circumstances occurred in Grimsby. So it was really struck a personal uh, chord with me. The second thing, um, and these aren't in any particular order, but the, any time there's uh, a domestic situation that escalates to this point um, that, where there's several victims, and, and the one real tragedy uh, not to, is the, the the murder of this a, the a, a six-year-old Shannon's daughter um, yes. so it really hit close to home for me and the one thing I really when we talked about victimology it's we we tend and when I say we the media uh, writers sometimes we we tend to get so in, ensconced in the the whole notion of the actual crime and the perpetrators but it was kind of a way for me to you know not to forget the the victims of this Horrible set of circumstances as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the the Me Too movement at its core is a is a movement about uh, sexual power, but but it, I think most women, at least, understand that it's really about female power beyond just sexual situations, and um, it involves domestic situations like the Shannon Cruz case and the murder of her and her entire family, including her six-year-old daughter, which was really it was a power move and. Um, power seems to corrupt doesn't
1: it it does and domestic domestic violence and domestic abuse is something that needs to be reported yes Very similar. yes you know, the, the underlying sentiment behind the me too movement it's it has to be reported. It has yeah. to be documented.
0: Yeah. Now, people like yourself who do the hard work of actually researching and writing about these terrible cases, I know what a toll it can take just from research I've done for my crime fiction, never mind uh, true crime reporting and, and uh, bringing this to the, the people's attention. Um, one of the things that we've just lived through this week is the terrible shooting and the deaths of 17 people in the Florida High School um, Uh, Tell us what you're learning about that so far, and I know that you're going to be researching that, and we'll talk about that in the future as well.
1: Yeah, I wrote a research article um, a few years back that was published in Blue Line magazine about uh, anatomy of a school shooting and some of the, the common behavioral precursors. And another horrible, tragic situation, a frustrating thing, for me, not only as as a person, but as as a researcher, having delved into this uh, type of work and research is a lot of people think the person just snapped and committed this crime. There is a lot of truth to that. Mm -hmm. What people don't realize is people close to these future perpetrators, before the crime's even been committed, these people are going through typically a number of different stressors in their life, and it's Very apparent in a lot of these cases where there's behavioral cues or Mm -hmm. or footprints on social media, and this is already in in my early research into this tragedy in in Parkland, Florida. It's already becoming apparent that the the shooter uh, had had taken photographs of himself with weapons. Mm -hmm. Had actually, there was a tipster. um, I'm looking into this a little bit further that uh, reported Nicholas Cruz, who is the shooter. Uh, to the FBI. The tip actually made it to the FBI. We're just
0: learning about that, yes.
1: Yeah, and I don't want to, I'm still in the early stages of of corroborating and and looking into that a little bit further, because it's going to be an extension of of my research work and, and writing, but right now, with the information we have available to us, the FBI has, admitted that that tip never made it to their Florida office and was never followed up. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and and gun control is really a whole separate issue. The issue is we have to, whether it's family, friends, coworkers, uh, people, authorities, number one, we have to diligently be observant and follow up any type of cues because the cues are there. Mm Mm-hmm with the majority of, of, of these incidents. My research looked at uh, using the Columbine school shooting with a couple shootings that occurred in Canada. And typically with these shooters, there's some source of frustration and aggression in their life. Yes. Um, I, re- I referred to the frustration-aggression ag- hy- hypothesis and that they they get so annoyed and frustrated and feel threatened with things in their life and when you look at the florida shooter uh, they had been expelled from that high school and that is no doubt in my mind was probably one of the the catalysts for this displaced aggression that occurred yes and the the sad thing is the, the people who have made these killers feel threatened and feel frustrated the eventual victims incredibly tragically had nothing to do with the original source of their yes. frustration. Yes. And that's where this violent, violent homicidal aggression is being displaced like we, we saw at the Florida school. Yeah. Um, something really, we really, really, and I know it was in the United States, but, you know, we're Canada. Incidents like this have happened up here. Mm-hmm. We need to talk, we need to lower the borders and seriously have, um, at the political level, a lot of different talks, we have to figure out solutions to this as
0: opposed to... Open dialogue. <laughs> Open dialogue is the key to almost any of these things. Um, we'll never eradicate crime, but I know from personal experience that when a crime is perpetrated against, let's say, someone like myself... The desire is there not to discuss it because it furthers the bad feelings associated with the crime. Neither the victims nor the witnesses really want to talk about it. No one really wants to uncover the the scab and um, get down to the meaty sores of these things. And yet, that's the only way we're going to address them. The bullying, the violent video games that you write about, um, those are part of it, certainly. Uh, gun registry is certainly part of it. I, I mean, it all all warrants discussion. And so uh, my hat's off to people like you who are working so hard to uncover whatever you can find about it. Well,
1: thanks. Yeah, that, you bring up a really good point about violent media. Not everybody that plays violent video games or watches violent is going to do that. No. I made a heinous act. But in the research I've done, when you take a look at all these perpetrators, uh, there's a huge, another huge factor is the contagion effect, the copycat effect mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of those shootings. But when you incessantly are playing video games, violent video games, over and over and watching violent movies, these youth, really become desensitized to real-world violence
0: that is the word and that's the word that we use desensitized they become uh, unempathetic
1: absolutely no no empathy for anybody and they feel that violence is a normative way to deal with their issues in the world yes because it becomes so desensitized to violence mm-hmm. and it's it, it's extremely tragic but in a lot of these cases, there are those cues there ahead of time that we have to be more diligent, about recognizing and intervening. We have to be proactive. That's right. Unfortunately, I think today, with what's going on, I believe it's the eighth school shooting in 2018 in the United States mm-hmm. where lives have been lost. This reactive, after the fact, knee jerk response is, is not getting us anywhere. No. We have to be proactive prevention. Yeah, Uh, needs to be implemented sooner than later. It's just it's becoming too commonplace in the world.
0: Yeah, and again, we were talking about this, and I'm going to reveal how old I am here, but in the 60s when I was uh, in grade school, when I was very young, people talked about the normalization uh, of things, uh, sensationalizing news media, for example, and things like that, and you and I know how innocent things were back then, really, but people were concerned about sensationalizing, and I am not pro-sensationalizing, don't get me wrong, but I am pro-open dialogue, whatever that takes and whatever form it takes. Um, You know, if somebody committed a crime, A, B, C, let's discuss A, B, and C. Let's not cover one aspect of that up. Let's get right. down to the core of it, what caused it, what we can do to prevent it.
1: Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The, my, the whole point of my research is gun control is... A huge issue, and that's why I say gun control is a whole separate issue, because even before that perpetrator has that AR-15 in their in their hands, with murderous intentions typically on their mind, when you look backwards, there, there are those behavioral precursors that are present. That person is going through a number of different stressors in their life mm-hmm. that become apparent with a lot of the people close to them, and in this case with Florida he posted I'm not 100% sure on what type of of media form but there was a post allegedly tied to Nicholas Cruz that said I'm going to be a professional school shooter and these are some of the media footprints the uh, paper trail that these people are leaving before the offense is even committed.
0: Yeah, But it does, it raises another question. I mean, what mother, father, sister, brother, child, or teacher wants to admit in their own mind that someone that they love or care about could be evil or intent on an evil act? I mean, we... Yeah,
1: you bring up a good point, Donna. It's not an easy thing to Uh, sometimes notice or or recognize or to even do. Uh, To my understanding in in my early uh, research into this case it it looked like that there was some violence at the home of uh, the Cruz
0: family uh, that had been reported to the police. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I'm this is another case that
1: I'd love to talk a little bit more about next time because it's again like the MacArthur case it's you know we're finding out more information as, as the days move forward.
0: Yeah, Well, if you're willing, we'll definitely have you back in 2019 because I know you're going to have more on the MacArthur case and more on, on this particular shooting, too, in the school. Um, I know that your research will take you down there, and I thank you for all your research, too. Um, I, I am a longtime reader of true crime, and again, I am totally against sensationalizing or glorifying these criminals, but I want to know what makes them happen because i want to see them prevented
1: yeah absolutely and i'd love to come back and talk about this and i hope in the meantime that some things mm-hmm. in the world change and we're, we're not hopefully not talking about any other
0: tragic events that would be back. really good that would be really good if, if we could focus on uh, your research and your writing on these ones and not have any new ones to discuss that would be the ideal um, I have to move us to a lighter note because I, I've promised our listeners now, I want to take you into true crime freelance journalism in particular. What can you tell any listeners who might be interested in, in pursuing that avenue of work?
1: That's a great question. You have to be, if it's something you're passionate about, um, I'm passionate about writing about true crime and researching it. I love getting to the root of an issue. And exploring and talking to some of the experts in the field it's all about bolstering your uh, your platform of what you're writing about and the more the more sources you can get uh, speaking to people the more time you spend uh, the more credible obviously your work is going to be and it's about it's about partnerships too with uh liaising with with other crime writers as well Um, Mm -hmm. discussing cases it's all about we don't do this for the money, I don't anyway.
0: Personally,
1: no. I'm so passionate about about writing and, and getting these stories out. Um, I have a story that's coming out in April in Blue Line Magazine about uh, the ISIS effect and tackling a lone wolf and a lot of the behavioral similarities to uh, some of these school shootings. It's, mm-hmm. uh, the behavioral pattern, the precursors are are very very similar. There's a lot of overlap. Uh, mm-hmm. Different type of Idea of rad- radicalization, but not to get off topic. For anybody that's interested in in true crime, if it's something you're passionate about writing, um, it's it's definitely an endless genre of, of things to
0: write and research. It sure is, and, and the thing is, most writers in any genre don't really write for the money. I mean, you know, they may they may think they do, but they soon learn otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, anyway, Stephen, I want to thank you. I hope you'll stay on the line for a moment. Um, But I want to thank you for for joining us on Dead to Rights today. I I know you've given our listeners an awful lot to chew over uh, on these particular cases.
1: Thank you very much, Donna. I really enjoyed speaking with you today.
0: And one more time, your website for people to go and have a look.
1: Absolutely. It's underworldstories.com. And if you don't mind, I'm on Twitter as well at Stephen with a pH G M underscore junior.
0: Steven with a PH underscore junior. Oh, Steven Hi. with a PH underscore junior. Yes. Okay, I'll yes. it is
1: at at S T E P H E N G M underscore Junior.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Are you on Thank Facebook you so as well?
1: Uh, yes, I am actually.
0: Okay. Very good, very good. And if our listeners want to look me up at Dead to Rights, I'm going to be in contact with Stephen because I have already followed him. I find his work fascinating. Thank you again, Stephen. And uh, for all our listeners, I know you've enjoyed that.
1: Let it rot.
0: I want to thank Stephen G. Metelsky. Crime expert and freelance journalist for joining us today on Dead to Rights, the podcast. You can find Dead to Rights at deadtorights.ca or at our Facebook page. Our Twitter handle is at Dead to Rights Pod. We'd love to hear from you at carrickpublishing.com or at our Carrick Publishing Facebook page. You can find me, Donna Carrick, on Twitter at Donna underscore Carrick or at my website, donnacarrick.com. If you're a published author and would like to join our listeners on the pod, contact me at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and say schedule me for an interview. Join us next week when we bring you Jun Ying Kirk, author of the Journey to the West trilogy, all the way from the United Kingdom. Our Dead to Rights theme song is Eyes of Gold, composed and performed by Ted Carrick who also brought us the original story scoring music. Thanks for joining us. See you next week.
1: Road, a man alone His vital signs go on hold And I don't know what you've been told But the years have turned my eyes gold I told you what you told me. We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides.